just noted that the big problem with revelation isn't the difficulty of interpretation with revelation. Uh, his sentence was actually children are some of the best at understanding the book of Revelation. They get it. They read the book of Revelation, they hear it, and they understand Jesus has come to die for our sins and raised from the dead, and we will be with him if we trust in him. I'm aiming to preach in that way today, knowing that I may leave a couple of questions unanswered for you. I have some unanswered questions of my own as we get closer to the book, the end of the book of Revelation. But I think what is here is very simple, very clear, can be convicting and encouraging. God is the enthroned creator. First thing this morning, God is the enthroned creator. Second thing this morning, God is the judge of the dead. God is the judge of the dead. And then a question. Is there salvation from the Creator's judgment? Is there any salvation from the Creator's judgment? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning so that the sermon that is preached here would be by your grace and mercy accompanied with power in our chests and in our souls and in our minds and in our hearts. So that what we hear, Father, we hear it as what it truly is, not the word of man, but your word. We are hungry, we are thirsty for your word. We are tired, we are exhausted with the words of men. So we want to hear from you today, Father. If it is difficult to hear, we pray that you would help us to hear difficult things. If there are things that are difficult to understand, we pray that you would help us to understand them. Father, you know in every heart, every seat here who needs to be encouraged to continue to press on in faith and how we need to be convicted in our own individual hearts, God. We need encouragement in so many ways and conviction to turn from sin in so many ways. Would you help us by your word for your glory for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. God is the enthroned creator. See what Marilyn read for us, chapter 20, verse 11. In this section, John sees, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, no place was found for them. I simply take the latter half of that verse to mean that the earth and sky are not in judgment the same way that death and Hades will be. But the big question I want to answer is, who makes God judge? Why is the world set up like this, that God is the judge of everyone? Who, who is God? Who put God on the throne Maybe you've used that phrase to suggest someone was overreaching their authority a bit. Who died and made you king? I've said that out loud, usually when it was unfitting, maybe to a parent a long time ago. Why is God the judge? Why is God the judge? 
This is not the first time that we are seeing this throne. In fact, the throne of God, go with me back in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. The, the throne of God and the thrones of men are referenced nearly 50 times in the book of Revelation. Perhaps today one thing you might be, do to be encouraged and grow in your understanding of Revelation would just be read through Revelation and just take special note of the thrones and how they are used. When we see the throne in chapter 20, we see that God is judge. But God being judge on the throne is simply the culmination of God being the creator on the throne. Revelation chapter 4, John's first vision of God on the throne. Just look at verse 2. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. That's how John's vision, his first vision into the door of heaven begins. I saw a throne and one seated on the throne. Look down in chapter 4, the end of that chapter, verses 9 through 11. Why is this one on the throne? Who is this one on the throne? Revelation 4, 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures gave, give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. What is the first thing that we need to know about God on his throne? He is on the throne and he is worthy to sit on the throne because he created everything and this is the throne of all creation. This is God's world. And his throne is over the whole world. He made the world. It was because God willed it into existence that the world exists the way it does. Even the devil, Martin Luther said, is God's devil. The picture throughout Revelation is largely in relation to God on this throne. In chapter 7, when John sees the great magnitude of those who are saved in Jesus Christ, he sees this in Revelation 7, verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, those who are saved said, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Revelation 8 through 11, one of the visions that we see is that prayer being offered up by the saints our prayers pictured as incense in the worship of heaven and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So much of the book of Revelation is happening around the throne and God is worthy to sit on the throne of creation because he is creator. His throne represents his overseeing, his all authoritative place before all creation. Our praise goes up before him on the throne. Our prayer goes up before him on the throne. A question for you today is, have you submitted that this world and that you and that everything that exists in it is God's? If we do not submit to God as creator, 
we will be very, very shocked, surprised, and offended to find out that he is judge. So how does it sit with you today? Is God judge? Is God rightfully the judge of souls? The judge of all men, the judge of good and evil. Does God have the right to judge you? Children understand this concept very easily and very early. Right now at our house, we have a table, and that table has Legos all over it. And on one side, it's got a taped-off section that's for finished Legos. If you have finished a project with your Legos, you put it right there, and no one can touch it. On the other side of the table, we have taped off another little section for the Legos that are in the process of being worked on. I'm not finished, but don't use those Legos. And in the middle is a very huge pile of mess of Legos and wheels and pieces and all those things. Of course, you can imagine why we would have such areas taped off on our table. Children do something that they don't have to be taught. When they make something, something invisible happens. So that they that made the thing now consider it owned and untouchable. If you make it, it's now illegal for someone else to touch it. Don't look at it. Don't move it. Don't borrow a part from it. How many times have I heard and have you heard a child or you said yourself about something they have made? That's mine. Why? I made it. It's one of the most fundamental things we think makes the world work. Friends, God has made the world and everything in it. He can look at every soul, every body, every womb, every hand, every dollar, every rock, every tree, every star, every blade of grass, every bug, every lion, and say, that's mine. If you are a Christian trusting in Christ, have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that not only have you been created by God, but saved by God, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, and that you are not your own? One way to tell if you've forgotten that God is the creator and owner of all things is if you are easily offended when a pastor, a counselor, a friend, or anyone, quote-unquote, judges you with God's word. Regardless if you consider the judgment true or not about you, you might just roll your eyes and think something like, oh, there they go again, using Bible verses. And certainly the Bible and God's word can be misused, they can be misapplied, they can be used to abuse others. But when God's word is put before you, well, have you developed an allergic reaction to it? Friends, that might very well be a sign that you have begun to think that you are your own. Unbeliever, Maybe you come today, you're not trusting in Christ. You don't believe in God. Have you, you ever considered that the reason God's word and God's judgment about your life now and about your life and the life to come 
Have you considered that the aversion to God's judgment on his throne is really rooted in the rejection that God is on the throne? The more fundamental question is, is God the creator and the owner of all things? These might be some of the most offensive words in the Bible, in our culture today. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. There is authority, there is ownership, and there is power. And along with it, and they were judged. Judged. Oh, how we hate that word when spoken about something someone may do to us. I remember a few years ago, someone visited our church. They asked one of our staff members, one of our members, I don't remember. If you remember the story, you can come tell me. At the back of the sanctuary after the service, they asked, what is the membership process? And you go to a class, you talk to a pastor, and then our church, here's your testimony. We affirm you as a member. At least that's what I assume was told this person. <laughs> By the time they got from the back of the sanctuary to the foyer talking with me, I asked them, did you... Uh, did you enjoy this morning? Or we, we see you again? Anything we can do for you? And this person simply replied, too judgy. This place is too judgy. The membership process is judgy. We just have an aversion to being ju judged about anything. We live in the time in America's history of unlimited personal rights championing our voice, personal freedom, personally defining ourselves. In his book, which our men are invited to read this summer together, Carl Truman refers to it as expressive individualism, a term that goes back to the 1800s in America. He says expressive individualism shows up and that we are unwilling to be judged by anyone. He says the increasing Social sensitivity to criticizing one another for the personal lifestyle choice reflects a view of the world where each person is free to perform life in whatever way they choose. And any attempt to express disapproval is there a blow, not there is a blow not simply against the particular ways of behaving, but against the right of that person to be whoever they wish to be. Indeed, we might even say the very notion of, quote, personal lifestyle choice is a symptom of a society where expressive individualism is the normative way of thinking about self and the self's place in the world. In other words, we don't think this is God's world. So we don't like God or anyone for that matter, judging us. In fact, we think our lives and our world is ours. So we judge ourselves. Isn't that really the question at the heart of the Supreme Court decision right now? Whose womb is that? Christians consider this when talking to other people about Jesus in our culture. Do not begin merely with the idea that Jesus has come to forgive our sins. More often, we need to go deeper to, under, to talk about God being enthroned as the creator of all things. 
That our whole predicament, our whole existence begins with God made it. He willed it into existence. Every other argument that we could make, every other passage that we could be bringing out is predicated on first acknowledging this is God's world and He is on the throne of all creation. When it is my world and I am the judge and I determine righteousness, I have no need for Jesus Christ. I didn't do anything wrong to begin with. But if it is God's world, if God is holy and pure, and there is no immorality in Him, and if He is the judge of good and evil, and if He is the judge of us, well, then we all need Jesus very, very badly. So many decades ago, it was normal for the average person to believe that God existed and that the whole world was His and that right and wrong was determined by Him, but that is not the case today. This is so fundamental. It is as fundamental as it gets about our lives. Our Sunday mornings from 9 to 12 are not ours. Our marriage bed is not ours. Our children are not ours. Our jobs are not ours. Our money is not ours. Our bodies are not ours. Everything that is created is God's. And that perception about that reality, if it is slightly skewed, it will begin to skew everything else exponentially. Jesus dying on the cross for sinners makes absolutely no sense. It serves no purpose. There's no reason for it. If there's not a God who created all things and is holy, he's created mankind to be holy, and he sees their disobedience as sin which needs to be judged. Perhaps today one of the sweetest songs for a new Christian or a repenting Christian or even someone becoming a Christian is the old song, This Is My Father's World. It sounds so simple, but it is something only a converted Christian would knowingly sing with faith and joy. The first line you can sing is Revelation 4. God is the creator on the throne. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand, the wonders wrought. Being able to sing that line enables us to sing the line that is more like Revelation 20. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. The throne of judgment we see in Revelation 20 is the logical extension of the throne of creation in Revelation 4. God is the creator on the throne, so of course it is God's holy, powerful, and just right to be the judge on the throne. If God be creator of skies and seas, he is the, the judge of souls and of me, which means God is the judge of the dead. Revelation chapter 20, pick up in verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, whether you are a king or a janitor in the king's palace, standing before the throne, and books were opened, 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. We see through Scripture this book of life being that record of those who have life forever. Also referred to as the Lamb's book of life, reference to Christ. It continues, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. John in the book of Revelation is seeing things that are to come. Some things that are Many things that are yet to come. He is looking forward now to the end of history and the world as we know it. And let this sink in what John is seeing. It is so simple. Yet unless God helps us, we can barely, barely bear to hear it. The Creator is on the throne and he will judge the dead. Dying is not the end. What's going on between us and God and our creator does not end when we die. God's judgment is not limited to the time while you are alive. In fact, the whole thrust of the book of Revelation is to be much more concerned about the life after this life. Be much more concerned about the reality behind, behind the reality that we see with our eyes. The spiritual reality is the driving truer reality. The material real, reality, flesh and bone, earth and rock and water and plants, that is real, but it is actually the less permanent reality it is not that there is a material world and then there also happens to be a spiritual world behind it. No, God is spiritual and he is eternal and he made the material into existence. Therefore, when we die, God will be the judge also of the dead. He's the judge of our souls which do not cease when we die. You do not just go away when you die. You will still be. And what is John seeing at the end of the world as we know it? Once the beast is destroyed on the earth, once the nations and great Babylon is destroyed in Revelation 17 and 18, once the nations who oppose God are destroyed in chapters 19 and 20, once Satan himself is destroyed and cast into the lake of fire, chapter 20, then we see what is destroyed next in order. Revelation 20, read it again, verse 13 and 14. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. They were before the throne, each one of them, according to what they had done. Look what it says in verse 14. Then the next thing in line with the beast, the great Babylon, Satan himself, next thing is then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. What just happened? The, the sea, possibly, I'm, I, I would lean towards probably, is the sea that is in front of the throne in chapter 4. Possibly it's a reference to something similar, but the sea is a theater of events through the book of Revelation. 
Either way, it functions, it seems, in this passage like death and Hades. What happens? The sea, death itself, and Hades give up their dead. That is to say that from the, the state of physical death, all those who have died are now brought before the throne. Hades, the realm of the dead, that place where the dead are, it gives up its dead. But what happens to death? What happens to Hades? Verse 14, then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. They themselves, death and Hades, were actually thrown into the lake of fire. What does this signify? When all those who come to die are brought before the throne, there will not be anything to look back at anymore. No more death. No more Hades behind you. Only God and the throne and his judgment before you. Think about it this way. The bus that drops you off at the judgment of God is never coming back again. There's not going to be any backwards in time or space to even remember. Physical death, the dying of the first death, that experience will be over. That won't happen anymore. Death is thrown into the lake of fire. There will not be a, a dying again. Just like suffering of this life ends in death, there will not be any more dying that stops suffering like that. Death will never end those sufferings again. Likewise, Hades, the realm of the dead, it's going to be over thrown into the lake of fire. There will no longer be a place where the dead are held, but the dead are not yet judged by God's throne. The place and time of Hades will be over. Death and Hades will be both thrown into the lake of fire. How do we think about what is the lake of fire? Well, I was talking with John this morning uh, before the service in our worship team and just said the, the more we get closer from Revelation 1 down to 21, the more the interpretations diverge of what means what in these terms. So you pick up a commentary, you can find a different understanding of what this is actually referring to. But there are countless of unbearable and unimaginable images of this in the world, paintings, scenes, and that is certainly the point of the text, that you think about a lake of fire, you think about the words and you understand how awful it is and there is no reason to try to soften it. it must be considered, is it a physical place? What kind of physical place? Which kind of physical place is it or is it a spiritual place? What is John describing? What is he seeing? Let me just say that one might think that to spiritualize the lake of fire in any way to be something other than physical flames and think that that is somehow to turn down the heat and minimize the lake of fire as if we could say, well, oh good, you, you've only spiritualized this lake of fire so there's not really a lake of fire is a serious, serious miscalculation and misinterpretation of this passage if that is your interpretation that it is spiritual or physically other than this physical experience. Consider what all is thrown into the lake of fire. Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire. Satan's appointed beast is in the lake of fire. There are the false prophets that have been thrown into the lake of fire. And so are men and women thrown into the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
consider a few things this passage is telling us about the lake of fire. One, the beast and Satan are there, so it must be commensurate with their state of eternal existence. Spiritual, embodied, yes. Physical death just died, secondly. From this lake of fire, there is no physically dying. Hades is gone. Hades is in the lake of fire. There's no going to another place from this place. There's no dying into another place once you're in this place. John refers to the lake of fire as the second death. It's a reference to spiritual death in John in Revelation 20. That's the point John's made to Christians back earlier in chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed are those who share in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Do not let yourself be somehow encouraged that judgment would be spiritual or in a different physical state than the physical state of our existence. It's only worse. Death and Hades are gone. Because it is not a physical lake of fire like we experience this physical. There will be no more transformations out of the body to bring any relief. Like now, death ends cancer. Death ends arthritis. Death ends diabetes. Heart conditions. Death can't end this. Because death is there too. That place, too, Hades, is gone. There's nowhere to go. There's no place to physically die into in order to escape it. I suppose, and I've thought about this, and whether or not this is theologically helpful and accurate, I think it's fair enough to say that there is, in a sense, although I'm very aware of those who are tracking and watching, I'm aware of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, back in 2011, and how this could sound like that, it is not like that. But I suppose that there is some form of an already and not yet aspect to suffering of hell likened to the already not yet aspect of the kingdom of heaven. We are now, if you are in Christ, you are now already adopted as children We have the life of God inside our chest and our souls. Our souls are awakened to life. We love God. We treasure Christ. We hate sin. That's what it's called to be born again. We are not in our final state. We are not in our final home. There is a bit of already not yet. In a similar kind of way, In theme only, per se, the misery, the fear, the anxiety, the paranoia that we feel because of our sin, what Paul calls, why Paul calls us dead in our trespasses, covered in shame, hiding from God like Adam and Eve in the garden, that spiritual state where you feel like your soul is on fire, like your soul is covered in ants, like your soul is agitated and cannot get still, like your soul is being burned. And you cannot get the heat to stop. Consider that this is but a little warmth from the lake of fire. There in the lake of fire, there will be no money, no sex, no food, 
none of the daily general graces that God has given us, which we so often use to try to hide shame and guilt and the aching of our ensuing death because of sin. God is the enthroned creator. And God will judge not only the living, but those who have died. God will judge those who have already died. I'm mostly convinced that the dead are being given up here by the sea, by death, and by Hades are those who are not Christians. My personal conviction right now today, as it is, is that this is not everyone coming to life. Those coming to judgment in 20, 15 through, or excuse me, 11 through 15, our, our passage here is those, 15 through 20, are those who are, have rejected Christ on the earth. Some hold this view, others do not, it's okay. Why would I say this? Because just a few verses earlier we read, we heard what happens to those who die believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Upon death, they immediately enjoy the first resurrection and they are distinguished from, quote, the rest of the dead. Look in chapter 20, verse 5, a few verses earlier. Those who are in Christ when they die reign with Christ, but he says in chapter 5, verse 5, the rest of the dead, those who do not reign with Christ, did not come to life until that thousand years were ended. Now in our passage, that thousand years is ended. So now the rest of the dead, quote, come to life. They enter that post-death state in order to be judged in the second death, that lake of fire. That's how I also make sense of the sentence, Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, the last phrase, each one of them according to what they had done. According to what they had done. There is a way to understand this as referring to all people, Christians and non-Christians, but to me it makes more sense to say that this is the judgment of all those who did not trust Christ and who did not follow Jesus before they died, so there is nothing for them but to be judged by what they had done. As I see it, it makes sense to say those who were judged according to what they had done are those who did not trust Christ, and therefore because they did not trust Christ for their sin, they can only be judged according to what they had done. They are without Christ. They are left with what they have done. Has this hit home with you? And God judges us not according to the accidents that happen to us. God judges us not according to our circumstances. He judges us righteously and justly according to what we have done. Steve read it for us this morning, Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, God will bring to the light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Every deed, every word, every purpose of the heart. The dead rising here will be judged, cast into the lake of fire according to what they have done. Let's be clear. Under those terms, no one can stand 
before the throne of the creator judge and say, I've been very good. No one can stand before the creator judge who is holy and in whom there is no darkness, in whom there is no sin, and say that on his terms and based on his person, I'm good. I was good. I only did good. No one has every deed, every word, every purpose of the heart as good and as holy as God. If God is the creator, judge, and if he is the judge of the dead, is there salvation from the creator's judgment? What then is the hope that God would not immediately judge anyone and everyone and throw us all into the lake of fire today? Here's the answer. That Jesus went to the throne before us. That Jesus got to the throne before we did. Look with me in the book of Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, a couple of books to the left, if you're in Revelation, puts you on page 1004. The whole book of Hebrews is trying to argue that in every way Jesus is better than what God gave Israel in the old covenant, in the earthly covenants. He's better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses, he's better than Joshua. And then you have Jesus being a better priest in a better temple. Jesus is a better priest in a better temple. That's connected to our passage today. The image on earth is that God gave Israel priests and they are to bring blood into the temple on behalf of the people and appease God's wrath on behalf of the people as their form of worship because of their sin. The only way to worship a holy God by a sinful people is to have a sacrifice between you. So the priest in the earthly tabernacle, in the earthly temple, would bring sacrifices, lambs, blood, once a year into the Holy of Holies, into where God dwelled in that earthly temple. But you know what? There is one really pesky problem with all those priests in the Old Covenant. All those priests in the tabernacle, all those priests in the temple, here's the problem. They kept dying. They just kept dying. That's why Hebrews says there were so many of them. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. We'll look at verses all the way through 8, 2. Hebrews 7, 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death by continuing in office. They would have kept being priests, but they just kept dying. Verse 24. But he... Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, referring to time and place, those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession, Jesus rose from the dead, and so Jesus can serve as the high priest of heaven's court forever. Forever. Nothing ever stops Jesus from mediating on man's behalf for God. Nothing. Just as sure as death in Hades is gone forever, Jesus is before God as priest forever. 
For it will, it was indeed fitting, continuing in Hebrews 7.26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for, first, for his own sins and then for those who, those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And this is talking about the cross. Jesus offered himself up as the blood, the blood sacrifice himself. The atoning sacrifice. Jesus did not come in as the priest and say, let me, let me go get a lamb and bring him. He came in himself. He offered himself up on the cross and that was him dying as a lamb himself on the behalf of all the sins of mankind. Look at it says in 728, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Chapter 8, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated where? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This is the gospel news. This is the good news for you today. Jesus did not just die on earth and pay for your sins that you committed on the earth in order to save you from dying on the earth. I'm gonna say that again. Jesus did not just die on the earth and pay for sins you committed on earth in order to save you from dying on earth. Rather, what Hebrews is telling us, Jesus died on earth for the sins you committed on the earth, but then Jesus resurrected from the earth never to die again. And he marched straight to the throne to God like a priest presenting his own blood so that when you are dead and you stand before the throne of the creator, judge, he is already there to forgive your sin and save you from the the second death, the lake of fire, the judgment you and I deserve. Jesus' resurrection is aimless. If it was not for the purpose of rising, never to die again and minister at the throne of the creator judge. Jesus' crucifixion is vanity and it is futile if his blood is only good for forgiveness of sins on this side of death. Because God judges the dead. Hebrews says it like this later in 9.24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of true things but into heaven itself. Christ has entered not into a tabernacle, not into a temple on the earth. He went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Trust in Jesus Christ today. Realize that this is God's world. God sits on the throne. God judges not only the living but the dead from the throne and there is no turning back after death. Jesus has already gone there 
He's already gone through death. He's already risen. He's already taken his blood to the throne so that whoever will put their trust and faith in him today, when they die, they do not have to be left to everything they have done. They will be saved. You can be saved by what Christ has done. Today, ask God, the creator of the world and everything in it, pray to him. This is really the one application today, mainly pray to him and ask forgiveness for your sin in his world with the life that he gave you. Today, go to God in prayer and thank him in faith, trusting that your sins are forgiven now and forever through Jesus Christ's crucifixion and the shedding of his blood for you. Trust and believe that there is a forgiveness for you, not just from your mom, not just from your friends, not just from your husbands, but a forgiveness from God to you because Christ has died for you and he stands at the throne applying his blood for your sins there. Trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins while you are alive and he will save you from your sins when you are dead. If we confess our sins 1 John 1, 9, 10 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Are you trusting in Christ? Or are you trusting that you are a good person? Are you ready to stand before God today and have every secret thing, every purpose of the heart be judged by the Creator? Are you as good as God? Are you as good as Jesus? The answer is no. The only sensible thing today is to trust that Jesus died and raised to save you from God's judgment and the lake of fire. In Revelation 4, we saw God as creator on the throne. In the next chapter, in Revelation chapter 5, it's all about Jesus. Jesus, the slain lamb and the throne. John continues to see it in chapter 5, verse 6. He says, And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. In chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, he picks up, As those around the throne were singing that God is the creator, in the last chapter, those around the throne are singing a new song, saying, Revelation 5, 9 and 10, saying, Worthy are you, the lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals, the one before the throne, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe, language, and nation. Our hope is that there is a slain lamb living, standing between us and the throne on the other side of our own death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, not only would we just understand what these things mean in our minds, but would we know them in our hearts. We pray that you would help by your spirit through the day, through the week, through the years, through death itself, you would enable us to carry a faith, a trust that there is forgiveness of sin. Father, help us 
live in this freedom and rest this week, that Jesus is already there before the throne, the lamb slain. Help us put our heads in our pillows tonight. And if we lose sleep, let it be because we are so happy and so sure. Father, where we feel the conviction of the Spirit, where we feel the death of sin, would you help us be awakened, quickened, eager to look to Christ before the throne for us. Take just a moment and pray as you reflect how you might pray back to the Lord in response to today's sermon. God, help us believe it, help us share it, help us tell it, help us enjoy it, help us speak of it, that Christ has died to save sinners in this life and the next. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.